sermon handouts uh, at the front uh, front table. Um, let's just pull back a little bit. Why should we study history? Like this is a historical book, but just why is it a wise practice to study history in general? Just someone throw out one thought. To learn from it, absolutely. And that's actually something that the New Testament makes very clear about why Christians should be invested in learning about the Old Testament history. In Romans 15.4, it says, everything that was written, referring to the Old Testament, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So, digging into and really ruminating and studying the history of God's people provides both endurance and encouragement. And as those things begin to work in our minds and hearts, it actually produces hope because you realize, look what these people went through. Look how God was faithful. Look at what I'm going through. I can trust that God's going to be faithful. So learning from the past as a general practice is wise, but making sure that part of our spiritual diet is dipping into the Old Testament and seeing it from a kind of an unfolding uh, story of history, what God has done in history, that will, even if the particular days don't feel like they're doing that much, you read something and you're like, okay, over time, it will produce encouragement and endurance and hope. If we only study what is current, if we only um, set our minds on things that are right in front of us. It, it's really easy to become a slave to the spirit of the age. And you miss out on the broader principles that God has embedded in history that are cross-cultural and across time and different contexts that teach us how life works best. What does it mean to honor God? What does it mean to live into full humanity? And if we don't have that grounding, then we're sort of at the mercy of whatever the loudest hot takes in our culture are by whomever. And we just kind of say, oh, okay, this sounds good. And I put all my chips over here. Then, oh, oh, this person has a new theory about something. Okay, we go over here. Knowing history, knowing God's truth grounds us so that we can take and learn from things around us, but from a place of being on a solid foundation of truth. So for those of you who are maybe joining us for the first time in this series on Samuel, Real quick overview, chapters 1 to 3 introduce Samuel, who's going to be raised as a new prophet, and God is going to lift up Samuel, his humble servant, while he cleans house of the corrupt leadership in Israel. Then there's this kind of strange um, interjection of what's been called the Ark narrative, and we just finished that last week where the Ark is captured by the Philistines, it goes into exile, and without one Israelite lifting a finger, the ark and the power of God defends itself and uh, returns to uh, Israel. And, you know, Israel is now in the process of saying, like, what does this mean? That we thought we had lost the ark forever, but now under its own power, it returns to us? They're trying to understand the implications of this for their, their identity as a nation. So I'm going to teach through 1 Samuel 7. And I'd like you to follow along. I'm going to move through it uh, somewhat quickly. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1 and 2 because there's sort of a bridge back into chapter 6. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took 
up the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. So this map right here shows this was when it was captured by the Philistines, then it was passed uh, kind of like a hot potato across different Philistine strongholds because there was tumors and different plagues that beset cities who had the ark. So they were like, I don't want the ark, you take the ark. And they eventually said, let's give it back to, let's push it back into Israelite territory. Had that weird story with the, the two cows and the ark being pulled on a cart. Um, and then it ends up being in Kiriath-Jerim, which is just a little north of um, the last place. Uh, I forget what, what's the... Oh yeah, Bet Shemesh. It's about nine, about nine miles northeast. And it rests there. And then we're given this tremendous grace note of, of promise. In verse 2 it says, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So this is a moment where um, and, and depending on how you understand the narrative, they're not sure whether this happens immediately when the ark is returned or during the 20 years or after the 20 years. But that's not really important. The, the point is the return of the ark sets in motion a growing sense of corporate um, turning of the hearts of God's people where they're like, we, gotta, we can't just keep kind of playing around and live in life as we see fit. We, we need to return to God. And that, that begins to build. Verse 3, So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord your God with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel says, if you are serious about this, then if you're serious about changing your spiritual direction, then there has to be a very real and concrete personal response to God. And he says that's going to be characterized by two things. You're going to put away your foreign gods and all the practices associated with the Canaanite gods and the different pagan gods around you. And depending on your translation, you, it might say turn from, rid yourselves of, forsake, but it's a totalizing verb. It doesn't mean just begin to sort of think through like maybe how you could loosen the grip. It's a, it's a cutting off. It, it has sort of a parallel in the New Testament when Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right hand causes, or right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's, it's meant to be not taken literally when Jesus says it, but it speaks to that Hebrew emphasis that that which should not belong in your life, you're not to entertain it. You get rid of it. So put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreths. And at this time, you've got the two main Canaanite fertility gods are Baal and Astartes. And they're, they're practiced, and it's a fertility cult, so there's a lot of um, uh, uh, sexual immorality that is kind of conflated with worship in those ancient contexts as the people believed that... Um, the way for a land to be fertile and prosperous is for humans to sort of force the hand of the gods by trying to drum up fertility themselves. So there was temple prostitution, both male and female, and that was one mechanism 
through which the Canaanites said, this is how we sort of get the ball rolling as it relates to ensuring good harvests and a prosperous life. And when we understand that, we might think that what Samuel is particularly concerned with is the sexual immorality, but it actually goes deeper than that because, again, it speaks to a worldview, a fundamental worldview issue where the pagan nations say, if we do these things, the gods will be under our control. And Samuel says, that kind of idea has no quarter in Israel. God is sovereign. You can ask him. You can fast and pray. But then it's always your will be done. God is not some spiritual technology that if we learn the right combo, he then serves us. He will be gracious to us and bless us in all kinds of ways. But that's in his way and in his timing. So he's calling the nation to repent of a very small, um, in a sense, transactional and consumeristic view of God. So the Israelites, verse 4, they put away their balls and their ashtoreths and they serve the Lord only. And that phrase, the balls and the, the Astartes or the Ashtoreths, it's sort of an idiom that just means the foreign gods and all the practices. So if I said to you, uh, turn from New Age practices. I mean, New Age is a massive umbrella that c covers all kinds of different, you know, people would say, well, you can't just say New Age because there's kind of like all these different particularities and distinctions with it's a huge umbrella term. And in the same way, this was an umbrella term that just meant any practice where you are devoting yourself or engaging in worship towards a f uh, not Yahweh and or maybe worshiping Yahweh, but also hedging your bets a bit. Like we'll include some other stuff too because couldn't hurt. Samuel says, no. You cut yourself off from all that isn't honoring to God. You throw yourself on His mercy and His power you trust him completely, commit to the Lord and serve him only. Not serve him amongst other things, serve him only. Then Samuel said, assemble all of Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And so they assembled, they drew water and poured it out before God, which is this beautiful picture of we're holding nothing back. Like water is a pretty precious commodity in the desert. So when you're gathering it and then pouring it out you're saying we're giving you our best we're putting it all on the table we're going all all chips in with god and on that day they fasted and they confessed we have sinned against you and samuel was serving as the leader of israel at that time and mizpah uh, is a word that means watchtower so it was an elevated place where you could see the surroundings and so it was a place where um, samuel calls god people to assemble and i thought about that because um over the pandemic, one of the things that has dropped off the map, uh, certainly understandably for in certain, um, justifiably in some contexts, has been the gathering of God's people. Not just on Sunday, but like larger assemblings of gatherings. I think of like Unite, things like that haven't been happening where Christians across a province or a nation or conferences, those have been all kind of like online. And on one level, it's like that's good in the early stages of a pandemic, but it's not good long term. Because you can see here that larger assemblies of God's people every once in a while are actually pretty important. And they can become spiritual turning points. And so they need to be things that we are committed to being a part of. 
Verse 7, when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled there at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came to attack them. And the Israelites heard it and they were scared. So they go to Samuel and they're like, can you cry out to God for us so that he can rescue us from the Philistines? And Samuel took a lamb and he sacrifices it to God and he cries out to God on Israel's behalf. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But, the day, but that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines. He scatters them. He causes them to panic. And most commentary and some historians say that was an earthquake. It was a massive earthquake that literally shook the ground under the Philistines, sending a not-so-subtle signal that they are not actually attacking Israel. They are attacking Yahweh, and they are... That's above their pay grade, so they should probably just like back up. They flee, and the men of Israel pursue them, rush out of Mizpah, um, and slaughter the Philistine soldiers along the way to a point below Bethkar, so kind of to the southwest. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. When we sang that last song, one of the verses was, Here I raise my Ebenezer. How many people knew what they were singing? Yeah, that's not, that's not uncommon. Not too many people. It's so weird, right? We just think of Ebenezer Scrooge. Like, that's our association. This is actually where it comes from. Ebenezer means stone of my help. It's a standing stone that is built to commemorate a pivotal before and after deliverance of God. So Jacob sets up a stone at Bethel when he has an encounter with God. Moses erects 12 stone pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel in Exodus 24. Joshua uses 12 stones to mark the place where God allowed Israel to cross the Jordan coming into the promised land. And these stones were visual markers. They are designed to be, well, they're designed to do a few, few things. Number one, the stones were a permanent reminder on the geographic landscape that this was a place at a certain point in time where God did something so powerful that the entire future was changed as a result. There's a clear before this event, after this event. And, and the reason why these standing stones or Ebenezers were raised was also to be a prompt to faith so that as people got discouraged, as the nation got discouraged, as leaders got discouraged, and you're out on a walk or you're traveling in an area, you saw an Ebenezer, you saw a collection of stones, and you said, oh, I remember when God did that, or I've heard the stories that God did that. Maybe they were even a part of making that, but even if they weren't, they would ask someone, why are these standing stones here? And someone would tell the story, and it would remind you, Oh yeah, God's in charge. This is, I'm going to be okay. God is faithful. God is faithful. It's a prompt to faith. It, it jarred you out of your unbelief or discouragement. And it was also there so that when a younger generation grew up, as you're walking, you'd see these stones and they'd say, what's the deal with the stones? And then you'd teach them. You'd teach them the story. Say, this is where God brought us into the promised land. And this is how he did it. Amazing miracle. Part of the Jordan Sea is awesome. Well, that's cool. So it was a prompt to discipling 
the next generation and successive generations. So when that song says, here I raise my Ebenezer, it's a really loaded biblical way of saying, when we have turning points in our life, we should commemorate them somehow. I mean, maybe that's a little stone thing in your garden, uh, but it could be a picture, could be a song, it could be a poem. But raising an Ebenezer and putting it somewhere where you're going to be consistently moving back and forth into is a really good, helpful faith prompt, especially during those seasons of deep discouragement and dryness when you realize, wow, that was 15 years ago, but I still remember when God did that. That was amazing. Yeah, I need to spend time with God. I, need to, I, need, I needed that prompt today to remind me that God has been faithful in the past. God is going to be faithful in the future. I just love that. I mean, the Jewish people were very tactile. It wasn't just like, oh, hear the stories and understand them. There were these visual prompts, these interruptions in your environment that were there um, to remind you, hey, remember, God's got this. You don't, you're, you're moving into the future. And you should do so with faith, not fear. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued. They stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout all of Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines and the towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel. They were reclaimed and restored to Israel. Israel delivers <clears throat> the neighboring territory from the hand of the Philistines. So he frees other, they free other people living under the oppression the violent oppression of the Philistines. And it says there was now peace between Israel and the Amorites, who were an ancient nation who Israel also was in a, a conflict with um, during their uh, transition into the promised land. So they get the victory and they gain ground and they secure peace, which is kind of really what, you know, what Israel's wanted the whole time. We want victory. We want this land that God has promised. We want to live in peace and flourishing under God. But, it, but notice it didn't happen until after they had turned from their worthless idols and committed themselves wholeheartedly to God. Before they were trying to do it while holding on to their idols and being like, we're committed to you, God-ish, pretty much 72%. Like We're not totally rejected. We're still offering sacrifices at, at Shiloh and... They're going through the motions. But God says, you're not going to experience victory. You're not going to experience prosperity that will actually enhance your life and not undermine it. You're not going to experience peace until first you yield to me fully. Verse 15, Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah where his home was and there he also held court for Israel and he built an altar there to the Lord. Samuel says, I got to lead Israel. I, I need to never fall into the temptation that I'm like a huge big deal. So I'm going to build an altar where I live every day. That act of worship is going to remind me that God is the, God's the one who's leading these people. It's not me. I'm like every other Israelite in the sense that I have to be fully committed to God. I'm not going to make the same mistakes that Hophni and Phinehas did and other corrupt priests 
who once they got into power kind of looked around and said, we can kind of do whatever we want because who's going to stop us? Samuel keeps his heart grounded in God. He keeps his heart grounded in the very first commandment God gives his people. You are to have no other gods before me. I'm to be number one in your life. So a few things to note. I mentioned in verse 12 about the Ebenezer. It's a word that means um, stone of help or depending on how you translate the Hebrew, thus far the Lord has helped me. And again, a prompt to all of us, whether or not we consider ourselves creative or not. Maybe it's just a literal rock with the word written on it with marker of something that God did in your life, a turning point. But it's important for us to place visual reminders, maybe in our office, certainly in our home, in places that prompt faith and push back against um, a spirit or a mentality of unbelief or discouragement or of deep doubt, when those times of deep doubt come to say, is God really going to come through in my life? Don't underestimate the importance of an Ebenezer. But I think the major focus for me in this passage is really verses 2 to 4, which is when it says, all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. And Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you're returning with all your hearts, then put away your foreign gods and commit to the Lord and serve him only. And then he's going to deliver you from your enemies. And so Israel did it. And I think this is the lesson that we have to learn from this text. And it applies to everyone, whether or not you are not a Christian whether you are a Christian, whether you're a new Christian, whether you're an old Christian, whether you've heard this for the hundredth time or the first time, it is so important for us to understand what it means to turn to God or return to God. Um, In the New Testament, that word is repentance, but that can be a loaded term and it can often be associated with simply feeling sorry for what you've done, like being remorseful. So I've done something, it's like, God, I'm really, really sorry. And then that person says, oh, I repented of what I did. It's like, no, you didn't. Not yet. You've confessed what you did. You feel bad for what you did. That's good. The step of repentance, though, is to put away the idols, the fixations, the behavior, the patterns that are leading you away from God, seducing you away from God, rid yourselves of them, and uh, turn to God, commit yourself to God, and serve Him. It's a both and. And sometimes when churches talk about turning to God, turning back to God, repenting. What they emphasize is what you're turning away from. And that's important. And, you know, whether we talk about idolatry or a life of sin, these are big, rich terms, but they're getting at that which runs interference in our life of being faithful to God, seduces us away from wholeheartedly serving God, distracts us away from wholeheartedly serving God and pursuing Him. It could be self-centeredness. It could be a particular fixation around making money or having status or being popular or trying to save yourself or self-justify yourself through um, some kind of action, maybe even good actions, maybe trying to literally come across as holier than thou to other people because of the might of your good works. It could be a simply living a self-defined path. You're, by all accounts, to people around you, you're a pretty good person. But in your heart of hearts, you're living for yourself. 
Everything in your world is built around, well, but how does this impact me? And now I want to integrate things that bring ease and pleasure into my life and distance myself from stuff that demands sacrifice and hardship. It could be a habit. It could be a relationship. It could be a kind of entertainment that you watch or take in. It could be a commitment that you have. It could be a job or a role in your life. There are things that are corrupting and poisonous and distracting. Sometimes they're big things. Sometimes they're little things. But a Christian is called to turn from them. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're actually not primarily called first to turn from those bad things. Your first calling is to actually renounce living your life on your own terms and to commit yourself to God in totality. That's why Christians have talked about the conversion experience. Conversion is when you repent, like kind of capital R. You capital T, turn to the Lord. There has to be a turning point in your life where you say, I'm not living for myself anymore or for these false idols or for these corrupting fixations. I'm going to go on the journey the rest of my life. I'm going to put God first and learn what that means. And when I veer from that path, come back to it again and again. I want God to be first in my life. That's turning from a life of sin to God. And then as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as God brings to awareness things in our life which aren't aligned, could be a big thing, could be a small thing. But as God begins to prompt our conscience, or maybe very violently shakes us <laughs> as we sit under a teaching or as we're walking through the forest praying one day or whatever, and it's just like, boom, this needs to go. You need to rid yourself of this or you need to change how you interact with this person like right now or brings the realization that you are harboring deep unforgiveness towards these people, this person, that we say, whoa, okay, I need to turn from that and not just be like, oh God, I'm sorry for that and renounce it. That's A. The B part is then to say, okay, what do I need to do? How do I serve God in this situation now? How do I commit myself to him fully? So to turn to God involves both a forsaking of things that are, broadly speaking, sinful, distorting, dysfunctional, unhelpful, and turning towards God. And the reason why you need both of those is because if your vision for Christian repentance or the Christian life is just to simply not try to do bad things, you'll be exhausted, it won't be fruitful, it won't be helpful. And at best case scenario, all you're going to end up is being a Christian who's known for the bad things they don't do. Womp womp. We're actually supposed to be known for the fruit of the Spirit, for growing into the character of Christ. And vices are cured by their virtue, by their opposite. So it's not enough to say, I realize how greedy and self-absorbed I am with my material wealth. Sorry about that, God. I'm going to try and not be greedy anymore. Repentance says, I'm going to put myself in a situation where I'm going to act out more generosity with my time, talent, and money. I, if I realize that I'm bullying someone or sarcasm and undercutting someone is the dominant mode of communication with this person. It's not to say, oh, I'll try to not do that as much. That's good. That's turning from this. But you need to have a vision of what you're turning towards. What does it mean to honor God? It means I am going to every day make sure I encourage this person. Tell them I appreciate them. 
say, I see this in you. I'm going to write letters to this person. I'm, I'm not just going to not do the wrong thing. I'm going to pursue the right thing and say, God, would you bless that? I want to become more like Jesus. I'm going to turn away from fear and live in faith and take steps that align with that. If you have a prompting in your life, maybe even today, or maybe God, it's been something that God has been just sort of sensitizing you around the edges of your heart, of a way of being, a path that you're walking, a habit that you're, you've gotten comfortable with, that you realize this, this is not right. It doesn't matter whether the conviction is very meager or it's like, oh, hitting you in the chest. It's something you need to pay attention to. And it's something you need to respond to. And if you need help knowing how to respond to that, reach out to a trusted Christian friend, reach out to me, reach out to Rick, and we can actually help and support you, not just feeling bad for being in kind of the place of stuckness or sinfulness or brokenness that you are, but we will actually resource you to help you move out of that and towards God. Because we don't want a church full of people who are just remorseful when they do bad things. We want a church of people who are turning from idols to the living God and experiencing growth and fullness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And that means if you're under the conviction that maybe, or the growing conviction, maybe God's real, maybe this Jesus thing is like legit, maybe Jesus is Lord. I don't even understand what that means, but I feel like it's true. Talk to us about it. Talk to someone about it. If you're coming under the conviction that, you know, everyone around me says this is not a big deal, but I feel like this is kind of a big deal. And it's definitely interfering in a close walk with God. Talk to someone about that. Turn from these worthless things. It took Israel a long time and a lot of painful lessons, a lot of, a lot of death, actually, um, to learn that victory and peace could only be secured after you return to God. It took them a long time to learn that. And the word that I have for myself and for you is, let's not be people who take a long time to learn that lesson. God wants to give us victory. God wants to lead us into prosperity. God wants to save and bless us. God wants to establish peace in our lives. But we have to yield to him first. We can't say, that sounds awesome, God. So this is how I want that to happen in my life. You can do that on my terms. No. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life in all of this on earth, like right now in real time, just like it is in heaven. I'm surrendering to you, God. I'm scared, but I'm surrendering to you. If you return to the Lord with all your heart and you rid yourself of your sinful, selfish fixations and priorities and commitments and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, he will deliver you out of the hands of your enemy now and forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. God, help us not to stop at just conviction. Help us not to stop at just remorse. Help us not to stop simply at confession. But to turn from what is wrong and sinful and 
pursue you, commit to you, and not not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. And I know that's going to look different for each person here and the particularity of the the situation. So by your spirit, um, bring clarity to what that needs to look like. But even this week, God, even if no one else around us is doing it, even if people just kind of move into their week unconscious to this reality, but our spirits have been made sensitive to this, God, we give you permission to search our hearts Bring before us what is not right, what is not aligned with what you would have for us. And give us the courage and the faith to follow you into a new future. Amen. Let's stand and sing this final song together.